Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and this is a very special episode uh, for me personally and I think for you as the audience as well because we have one of the most leading luminaries out of the semiconductor industry with us, Dr. Navid Sharwani needs no introduction, but for those of you who may not fully know the name and the person, he's currently chairman and president and CEO of Rapid Silicon. It was launched in 2021 uh, with the goal to promote, adopt, and implement open source technology to address the FPGA market, which are basically field programmable gate arrays or integrated uh, circuits sold off the shelf. Um, He's an industry veteran uh, known throughout the industry, both in the United States and globally, um, has launched uh, a number of uh, ventures related to this industry over time, uh, including uh, Intel Microelectronic Services, Open Silicon, and others. Collectively, these companies have had a valuation of over $4.5 billion. So if there's somebody we need to talk to about semiconductors and where this sector is going, Dr. Shirwani is the person. Um, and on the Pakistan side, uh, he recently led an effort to develop Pakistan semiconductor policy, the link for which I have put in the description below. Uh, Dr. Shirwani, thank you so much for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Dr. Sav, I've been reading uh, and going down this rabbit hole around the semiconductor industry as many others have been. You know, Chip War came out, Chris Miller's must-read book, uh, which sort of gives us, you know, at least for a layman, the full history of uh, this ecosystem, how it emerged, how East Asia and then China subsequently played a role in that. Um, And then, of course, Over the last few months, uh, particularly since COVID, everybody realized that this was a strategic sector in the sense that supply chains were linked and any issues in one part of the world uh, led to chaos uh, in another. We saw this in the car industry, the electronics industry, et cetera. So now the United States, China, India, and others are rolling out their own chip manufacturing plans uh, in terms of subsidizing uh, manufacturing at home, but also trying to look into the future of this industry. Um, I want to begin this conversation uh, to hear your perspective on where this global sector is, particularly in a time of mounting US-China strategic competition and what's going on globally in terms of countries saying, you know, this is a strategic sector. We cannot rely on outsiders to provide this stuff. And therefore, some level of domestic capability is essential. Where do you see things going uh, and things sort of evolving towards in this sector? Well, I think, uh, first of all, we have to understand that the semiconductor industry is a little different than many industries in the sense that what happened in 1960s when we invented the integrated circuit, in particular planar integrated circuit using silicon, mostly invented by people who were in Fairchild. And then they went on to create Intel and 100 other companies in Silicon Valley. That technology, as it grew, what it did was that we were able to use Moore's law to guide us but it did something. It made each and every supplier specialized over the 40, 50, 60 years. So the number of supplies keep on dwindling. Eventually what happened after 60 years of industry, you have pick a number 70 suppliers, but use only one or two per item. Why it happened? Because industry is not that big. Industry is not that big. So, and you need highly specialized things i give you an example. We use hydrofluoric acid. Hydrofluoric acid that we need is not ordinary hydrofluoric acid. It is hydrofluoric acid which must have purity of 99.999999999%. Who can make such hydrofluoric acid? Not many manufacturers. In fact, right now, it's only two in the whole world. So, they must supply the whole world with hydrofluoric acid. And if you don't have a good relationship with that country or there's some export control or something like that in those two, then you don't have hydrofluoric acid. So you can say, okay, we can set up our own plant and make hydrofluoric acid. No. Why? Because setting up such a specialized plant with such expense, which can even measure such purity, is not worth it until you are making a certain amount. This theory 
get promoted across entire supply chain of material, equipment, gases, everything. This is what happened. So what can you do? Well, if every country will try to build up these all these materials, their plants will be there. There will be on suboptimal capacity. The cost will go up. If at all possible, the cost will go up. Then everybody wants their own fab for strategic reason or sovereignty reason. They will not be full. Their cost will go up. The net net of this entire thing is first, I'm not sure if it is even possible to completely disentangle the entire supply chain because of uh, the reasons which are, for example, think about neon gas is another thing. Neon gas is a byproduct of iron production. When we do build steel, neon gas is a byproduct. Well, first of all, you have to have sufficient iron production. So more, actually, for example, one source of this is Ukraine. Ukraine has huge iron production, steel production facilities. So a large amount of neon gas comes from there. But now, because of uh, supply chain disruption there because of the war. Yeah. So now this is an example where of war, not sovereignty reason or any other reason we have limited access to that. Now we have to look at other sources of neon. So this is an example that this supply chain did depend on world collaboration because of specialization. And, and if we try to do it, it's possible, difficult, not entirely possible, 100%. So everybody will be able to disentangle some, but still you will have weak points all over the point. And it's entirely possible United States or China or India can get all 250 components, but miss three. Cobalt comes from three African countries, let's say. Well, those three African countries decide not to sell you cobalt. Okay, then what are you going to do? Attack them? See, so we have a, a problem which... I don't believe it's very easy to solve. And I think it will happen with anything which is this complicated, this specialized, and requires 250 plus equipment, materials, expertise, talent, design houses, fabs, package, tests, all over the world to collaborate and work together. So that is one aspect of it. Is it even possible to disentangle? The second aspect is that our war with China is about access to technology, not just semiconductor. And I think we realize that with the advent of 5G and AI, the nation that will deploy that first, we get ahead of others by so much that others may not be able to catch up. For example, 5G will provide us enough bandwidth with decent latency that we will be able to put each machine and connected in a digital model over in cloud. Then you can connect all the factories with each other end to end and eventually your entire, entire economy. The nation that can do that will bring up the productivity of that factories, those sectors and economy by a few percentage points without gigantic improvement of CapEx. Now that nation which can uplift its productivity across all sectors because each factory is not, not making extra stuff because it knows exactly how much is needed down the stream. It receives material in exactly the right time. No extra trucks are rotating on the highways. No extra uh, containers are sitting on ships which are not necessary. If you do end-to-end -end optimization because of 5G, because I will know which each machine is doing, because I know what each worker is doing, because I know which factory is doing, then you add AI to that, which means that I can detect anomalies and act on them at a robot by robot level, uh, car by car level, truck by truck level, machine by machine level. Put this all together. So I think the issue is, do we want to create some space and time for our industry to catch up. We know we are about five to seven years behind now in deployment of 5G and AI. I don't know if the cat is already out of the bag. So that is the reason United States' first target was Huawei. It's because 5G took place in China in Huawei. And, and Huawei was ahead of everybody, and they still are, in terms of rolling out of 5G. And whichever nation, if it is China, 
anybody else who deploys 5G and AI. And you can now see, we have been saying that for many, many years, that AI is another aircraft taking off. It will rolling down and it will just accelerate. And now you can see with things like chat, GPT and others, this is just the first wave of generative tools. Others are coming. And I believe that somewhere in 2010 and then 2015, many CEOs of Silicon Valley wrote letters to the president saying that AI is coming and, and it, it, it is going to come and it's going to have great effects, good effects, but it could also have very negative effects. If you combine this ever accelerating at exponential speed AI, combine that with the deployment technology of 5G, that nation will then really have huge advantage over the other nations. I believe that is the fundamental crux of what the war is all about. US is trying to deny other nations, other non-friendly nations, or deny or de delay their access to technology so that our economy, our innovators, our industry will have a chance to compete. And that means semiconductor because 5G deployment and the chips is part of it. And then also then access of the cloud, which is data centers, which uses high-end chips. So I think if you put it together, the crux is basically global competition and access to 5G AI. Unfortunately, semiconductor is the enabling component, but not, I mean, software is another very big component, technology and research in universities, another big component, access to talent and human resources, another component of it. And this migration of talent around the world is also, you cannot cap people. I mean, if you, if you do, and they might migrate to different countries, and then you have to deal with that. So I think it's a fairly complex subject, it's a very interesting subject. And so we spent last 50 years trying to globalize the world, and now we are trying to undo it. So I think the next five, 10 years is going to be a very interesting, very conflict-driven, contentious uh, uh, history in the world. And I hope it doesn't come to that. I, I hope that we find ways to compete and collaborate because I think the, if you don't do that, the damage is not to, to rich people. The damage is not to as much as upper middle class. The damage is mostly to lower middle class and poor people, cell phones, electronics, laptops. Eventually everything in life will become expensive because everything in life does depend on semiconductors one way and decoupling just makes everything expensive. And when you make it expensive, the lower part of the society, which is already pressured because of the growing gap because of the rich and the poor, will be depressed even further because of the increasing cost of all commodities and things that we need to uplift them. I mean, we should be making cheaper cell phones, we should be making cheaper laptops, we should be making cheaper electronics and things that uplift the poor people. This will have exactly the opposite effect. So, this is my worry. All of this. Sounds great. People are trying to fight some big wars and all that is fantastic. Only the poor people of the world, around the world, including United States, including China, will pay the price of this war. And unfortunately, that is absolutely the wrong people who would be paying the, the cost. And the situation in third world countries will be even worse. Thank you for that overview. And there's a lot to unpack here. But as you were describing uh, this issue, two things popped up in my head. One was, I was talking to somebody earlier this week about, you know, in India, we're beginning to see uh, companies like Xiaomi, Chinese mobile phone manufacturers being hounded. Um, and the question we were discussing was, well, is this a strategic choice the Indian government is making? And perhaps the answer to that is yes. And that led us to the question then of, well, India's entire digitization journey, the Excel exponential growth of even things like UPI and digital payments and all of that is on the back of cheap access to mobile phones, uh, feature plus and smartphones now. Um, and if you kick all of the cheaper Chinese players out, essentially you will be left with expensive mobile phone access, which then only hurts and creates headwinds for the digitization journey. No, that's not the hope. The hope is that uh, Xiaomi, uh, uh, Oppo, and Vivo will be replaced by Indian brands. Yes. But okay, what are you, okay, you make the brand, but you make no chips in India. So chips will still come from China and US. Okay, so you moved 10% or 15% of the top margin into India, still it doesn't, plus 
you antagonize those nations. Let's say for some reason China and US are both antagonized with India. Okay, then you cannot absolutely make cell phones in India, no matter the brand. So I think these kind of policies have to be thought through. I, I that's why I encourage United States and China also to think through and not take a short-term thinking. Okay, you kick Xiaomi out, you kick Oppo out, and Vivo out. Fine. Oh, don't worry. Eventually, in in a longer term, they not happen. Yeah. Is because at the end of the day, you don't have the rest. You don't have the chips. They don't have the packaging. They don't have the test. And even if they have that, is they don't have that the volume that is needed, and and that is coming not just from China. It's coming from Thailand, coming from Philippines, Malaysia. Many nations actually package the test, package and test the chips. So. I think it is a bit of a short-term thinking, and I think that is the reason I think we should ed uh, uh, educate edu uh, Modi's government as much as possible. We should educate U.S. government as possible. We should educate Chinese government as possible to have long-term thinking, which will eventually lead them to think that collaboration, cooperation, is the only way. It's just because of the very complex, integrated nature, and uh, I think. Uh, India and, and China and US, everybody is thinking that there is some political gain to be made by making an enemy out of somebody else. And they say, oh, we have this enemy, let's go and rally the crowd and, and go do something. I believe this is not the right policy. You can do that, it's a short term political gain, but it's a, it's a long term loss of your industry, their industry, global uh, consumers. And, and, and I think, how big is the Indian market? At the India, if you are going to build cell phones in India, are you going to sell in India? How you can compete with those guys who sell globally? They will make cheaper phones, better phones. Eventually, the cell phone cost in India will go up. Now you have put yeah. a tax on your citizens for 10, 20, 30 percent for no reason. Just because you don't want to import the, you don't let, not import. They will come to your country and make the cell phones, right? You'll use, they'll use local labor. They, all that is good. But still, it is their brand. They're bringing in technology from outside. Plus, they're also innovating. They're building better phones. But your brand will be able to build as, with a smaller market. Now, the question is less for India because India is a large country. But still, I think at a global scale, Apple got there because of there was a global market for cell phones. Now, let's say if you were limited Apple only to US and nobody in China, US, and worldwide was buying Apple phones, would Apple made these kind of profits and would Apple innovated as the rate they did because there was not enough demand. So even brands like Apple would struggle if you limit their markets. Now, Apple has been very smart. They sell in China, they sell in US, they sell in worldwide. And no country seems to be ever saying any problem with Apple. I mean, this is smart politics. Tim Cook has to be really congratulated. Whatever he did, there's never a finger pointed towards Apple, which actually is the deployer of AI, is the deployer of 5G, is a deployer of everything else that has enabled those countries to grow. But yet, notice Apple is never in the news. Apple is never a topic of discussion. Intel is, AMD is, NVIDIA is. Excuse me, why Apple is not? Apple is enabling all of that. Yeah. So I think it has something to do with politics and how smart you are understand the politics. I believe Apple has done a great job to keep its name completely out. And you have to know something, one of the most profitable, if not the profitable company in China is Apple China. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that in a global conflict, one enabler of technologies and economy around the world is completely out of the news. I, I think hats off to Tim Cook and the team. They're doing a wonderful job of staying out of this and selling phones all over the world without anybody restricting anything. Yeah, and increasingly beginning to bring a lot of the key components in-house, right? I was reading this week that they're going to begin shifting away the displays away from Samsung to OLEDs uh, that are Apple only. Um, and then, of course, they've made a big shift on the chip side of things as well over the last few years. And it's fascinating. It's it's it, I I I've been down the Apple rabbit hole and the new rabbit hole that 
I'm beginning to go down is ASML out of the Netherlands, which again, in, in the book Chip War, if folks have read it, will remember, and you know this better than anybody, that EUV machine that they have has almost 300,000 components um, sourced globally. They, they, are, they may be the Lego puzzle, puzzle piece to bringing everything together, but as you said, if you have all the components but three, that $200 million machine is not worth anything because three components are missing in that out of 300,000. And, you know, first talking about, we'll come back to SML in a moment, but Apple. Apple waited for years for Intel and AMD and others to make the chips. They're saying, we need a chip like this. We need this performance. We need this power. They were unable to deliver. So on one side, you can say that Apple is doing work vertical integration to improve on their cost structure and become more profitable, yes. But who forced it? Their vendors who were unable to meet their ever increase. Apple is a very demanding customer. But they kept on saying, we need this power. And these vendors will say, no, this is not possible. We know we have been doing it for 60 years. Well, Apple showed them it's entirely possible. And now, in my recent LinkedIn post, I noted something interesting that AMD and Intel used to compete with each other when they were bringing out their uh, cell phone related phone or uh, laptop related phone. Now they don't compare with each other. They compare the Apple with M1 and M2. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I you're so on point on that because I, I remember the good old days when I was a teenager, you would like worry about ye Intel wali chip leni hai, AMD leni hai, Nvidia graphics card naya aya hai, ye lagana hai. And now with the M1, M2, you basically go into an Apple store and buy it off the shelf. Yes, you pay a premium for it, but you don't have to worry about the performance and the integration part of it. It just works brilliantly. So same thing Apple is saying that we can do with our, with our all of the chips that they buy from uh, Broadcom and others, because the same problem with Broadcom. Apple is saying you can do this and Broadcom saying no. The reason for that, for Broadcom and Intel and AM to do that because they're looking at a wider market than Apple. And they're saying, okay, I have Apple as a customer, but this chip is too specific for Apple. Would other people buy it? Maybe it is too intense, or maybe it would require more R&D that I don't want to put in. So Apple is rich enough companies, okay, I can do it myself. And that's what they're doing. So I think Apple eventually will become a completely vertically integrated company because their needs are so specialized that only they can make. And they have, this is the reason they are doing it. But they have a big enough market that they can do that. If they didn't have enough, if they were not buying, selling enough cell phones, they will, their problem will arrive when the cell phone market will slow down. It will eventually slow down. Right now, people are replacing cell phones very regularly. There would be need, no need to do that after some time. Of course, there would be competition. Now, Thanks to U.S. action against Huawei, Huawei uh, has been taken out out of the cell phone market. I have a Huawei phone other than my Apple phone. It's a fantastic phone. And if Apple played any role in this policy against Huawei, it would be very smart. They took out their global competition without having to compete with them just by a national action. And the biggest loss of a single company at a cell phone level would have been Apple. Because Huawei phones, the ones I had was two years old, was fantastic. Great apps, great screen, great cameras, lot of extra features which actually Apple didn't have. And I was, when I was in China, I bought one phone and I was quite amazed, wow, this is, because I, all my life I've just used Apple phone and two years ago I bought my first non-Apple phone. I was quite amazed. And then this action was taken against Huawei and. Now that competition is gone. But if you think about that, that eventually if Apple does not have enough market, can it continue this expensive? The reason we buy components from others is because we don't want to put in all the money of R&D of each and every component, right? You're rich enough, your market is big enough that you could do that. Apple seems to think it can. And maybe it can. And if the market remains, it can. So anyway, so on ASML, you're right. 300,000 parts, uh, many of them sourced in Europe, but others are sourced also outside of Europe also. And uh, it's, can they make this machine without world collaboration? No. But can they make it without China? Yes, it's possible. Uh, 
wait a minute, the largest market of EUV machines was supposed to be China. So is the market viable now? If the 50 fabs that were going to be set up in China the next five, seven years, if they're not going to be set up, they don't need the EU or you won't sell them the EU machines. Can you continue you know, waiting on EU machines if the, you have cut off a market? So I think that's one component. And the second component of that would be, okay, eventually they will make their own EUV machine that they will not buy from ASN. I mean, EUV machines are hard to make, but so I think are fusion reactors, so are jet engines, so are high-speed trains, so are commercial planes. Eventually, China made those machines. My favorite example that you can deny some country by technology, by sanctions, is Pakistan. When Pakistan decided to build a nuclear program, the whole world sanctioned Pakistan. I believe that every container going in and out of Pakistan was inspected by every intelligence agency in the world and more. Under all those sanctions, a third world disorganized country like Pakistan built, I believe, the third or the fourth largest nuclear program, which is very well respected around the world. Not only they build a nuclear program, they build a delivery capability good enough to have a plausible threat. Okay, so were sanctions successful against Pakistan? I think whoever put that sanction regime against Pakistan should be asked, how good were your sanctions? Why did they not work against a third world country? And why would the similar idea would work against China, which is not a third world country, has enormous resources, highly organized, and they have consistently shown technologies that others have invented, copied or otherwise, they were able to duplicate and they have those technologies now. And sophisticated things, like, I mean, there are only a few people, I think three, who can make a jet engine. And the fourth one is now in China, right? So I think you have to really think hard that is this sanction regime, so eliminate this or accelerates it. In, in case of Pakistan, it accelerated, right? So Pakistan was probably going to do that in 30 years. They did it in it 10. It becomes an ego thing, right? It's like for a nation state, it becomes, a, now I want to show you what I am capable of One, doing. Two, then they say, okay, so world has decided not to give us food. We must grow our own food. And so if you are pushed hard, people don't die. People try. And people try harder if you push them harder. And we shouldn't assume that you can push people down. So I think given that, I again come back to that. Collaboration while competing. We always compete, but we collaborate. I mean, look at, I think EUV machine of ASML is a great example of competition and collaboration. ASML never had the money to build the EUV machine. This money was paid to them by Intel, by Samsung, by TSMC, by a consortium of 15, 20 companies we pooled the money for over 15 years, gave data, gave research, gave researchers, held weekly meetings, monthly meetings, quarterly reviews with ASML. And then we have this machine. Would it be possible without global collaboration? No. Would the next innovation possible without global cooperation? The answer is no. These are not simple innovations. It took companies from Korea, Taiwan, China, United States working together while competing. Samsung and TSMC hate each other. TSMC, Intel and AMD hate each other. Yet for EUV, they collaborated because they had to. So yeah, not, not to go down the rabbit hole that, you know, we, we were talking about pre-recording, right? Uh, if you layer in on top of uh, all of this, the shared human, human civilizational challenges we face through climate change, uh, do we want to utilize our scarce resources in a time of crisis to fight the strategic competition and deny each other core technology or collaborate and deploy these technologies in a cheaper, faster, more productive manner because of the shared threat that we face with an environment that is rapidly changing in part because not in part, basically due to human action, right? And so that should be the shared challenge, not the shared challenge um, that that has become a strategic competition for various reasons. Um, 
I want to pivot a bit, uh, uh, Dr. Sherwani, to our conversation uh, focused on the work you led um, in terms of where Pakistan fits into this conversation and in this global ecosystem. The semiconductor policy, I've read fascinating document. Um, it was presented to former, now former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Um, help us understand about your thinking around where does Pakistan fit in, uh, given it's still, a, as you said, a developing economy, highly unorganized, but still has a lot of potential, particularly on the human talent side, uh, to put out uh, and be competitive in core technologies like this. Um, how do you see Pakistan's role and its potential in the global semiconductor ecosystem? So uh, I think this is, this is an excellent question. And I think we have to go back uh, 22 years, Y2K. When Y2K was happening, one nation responded, India. At that time, I believe India's total software export number was somewhere like 1 billion, something like that. Today, 22 years later, it is 160 billion plus, just the software, which is more than what Saudi Arabia export as oil. Why did it happen? Because India, in that moment of time, entrepreneurs in India, industrialists in India, government in India, realized this is something we can do. We have people. The world needs people, a lot of people hundreds and thousands of people. Within two years, in every nook and corner of Bangalore, Ahmedabad, Chennai, Kambetor, Chandigarh, all over India, there were these houses which were doing this Y2K. Not only it opened the doors of all the international companies coming to India, it trained a lot of software talent in India, on which this $160 billion industry now rests. I believe we have a similar Y2K moment in semiconductor. Semiconductor world was fed by collaboration. So which means one chip was used by everybody. So it has to be designed once. Problem started 20 years ago in the first Gulf War. First Gulf War, what happened is that people for the first time realized that we are all using GPS chips from US, right? In a conflict with US, they will turn off the GPS satellites at least to us, and we will be blind. This is why Iraq was blind completely. Their mobile phones were turned off, their location devices were turned off, their cell phone towers were turned off. So suddenly a Republican guard, which fought 10-year war against a pitched tough army called Iran, looked like a bunch of little middle school kids running Helter Skelter. Interesting, isn't it? And all these Republican guards seem to just disappear. And Iraq was conquered in a couple of days. It taught world something. Today, there are, I think, seven GPS systems. China has its own GPS system. Europe has its own. India has its own. Russia has its own. China. So all of them. Now, which means one chip was now replaced by seven chips. So seven chips were designed. Seven times the effort is now needed, if not more, to design those chips. Now, look at everything that is related. If you decouple the world, everything that was being designed once has to be divided twice, thrice, or even seven times. Even if the chip was designed once, before all that, we were saying we don't have enough people designing. Why? Why don't we have people designing? That has its roots in the problem related to the reward of being a software engineer versus a hardware engineer. In US, for the last 20 years, the electrical engineering population has been declining very dramatically. Very few people are going into electrical engineering and the ones that do get electrical engineering degrees come out, take a few programming classes and become a software engineer because software cycles are better, salaries are better, chances of setting startups is better, Startups take lower money and have a higher exit. Nothing working. If you compare hardware and software, it makes actually no sense from either an individual purpose or venture capital purpose uh, that why should you be in hardware or software. So this is the situation. We had a declining human resource to begin with. 
This is before we imposed an artificial disaster of not designing one chip but seven chips in an extreme case. So where is this headcount going to come from? It's not coming from US. Interestingly, not coming from India. India is already overrun. Salaries are now approaching close to that of US. Okay, forget salaries. Turnover rates. In one of my companies, we had 23% turnover, meaning 23% we were left the company and we had to hire new one. Forget expansion. Now we are barely keeping up with keeping the people in the... Because of the turnover, expertise is depleted. And your Some costs are going up because of the turnover. Costs are going up, but expertise, meaning... You don't, if you don't, in semiconductor, if you don't work on it for some, some time, you don't become an expert. If you keep on jumping companies, you are a kind of a jack of all trades, but no master of none. Semiconductor is all about master. And people at Intel and AMD and other companies work for 35 years doing single thing. This is a specialization problem. Semiconductor is not software. You work somewhere for two years, jump somewhere, jump somewhere, jump somewhere. No, but people are doing it. So we have a human resource problem in which large countries, which have a large human resource, can help. This is the opportunity of Pakistan. The opportunity of Pakistan is we can become supplier of human resource to any nation which aspires to do chip design. Because chip designing, if you have enough electrical engineers, you can train somebody in about less than a year to become a chip designer, and then that person can grow and learn other aspects. We have done experiments in Pakistan. We have shown trained people. Started two, three years ago when we presented it to Prime Minister Imran Khan, uh, a plan to train eventually 100,000 people in Pakistan. That would have brought three to four billion dollars into Pakistan. Now, you train people don't have to stay in Pakistan. They could work in design centers in Pakistan, or they could leave Pakistan, go to China, US, uh, anywhere else. The people would hire them to go work in those countries, and those will then you know, have remittances coming from outside. So the idea really is that Pakistan can duplicate what India did for Y2K in semiconductor. Now, Y2K was a little bit easier because you don't need additional training. Uh, semiconductor is a little bit harder, but we proved that it is doable. We started a small effort, trained 200 people. Now, because of that, Pakistan today, three years later, has about, I would say, seven, eight companies now using maybe seven, 800 people. Small effort that it was individually done by me and a couple of other people, a few other people. But if we had done that at the national scale, if still we can do that national scale. But if we, so we can deploy 100,000 people in about seven, eight years. But if we don't do that, Bangladesh will do it, Egypt will do it, other countries will do it, and the train would have left the station just like we missed Y2K, we miss this train as well. So I think, you know, Today's world opportunities are shared. People know it's not like secret. People all over the know. The nation, people, companies, individuals which will take the first step will benefit. Others will be left behind. So that is the opportunity of Pakistan. I believe we can train our young people. We have the road. We have the universities. The plan clearly outlines which 42 universities have to be buffered up. The plan is not very expensive. The total. That was less than $225 million. $225 million investment that brings in $3 to $4 billion per year, anybody will tell you is a great investment. And it's not like it was not proven in other countries. It's already proven. It has happened. So I believe Pakistan still needs to focus and we should not miss this opportunity. That was the interesting part in, in the plan, you know, like 200 something million dollars in a country that gives over 17 billion a year in different subsidies benefits to the haves in the country, not, not um, this again, because it's linked to human capital. Uh, it would go to folks who want to become engineers, folks who are coming from backgrounds that want to are technically capable or want to be technically capable. And again, it's a social upward social mobility route as well. Right. And again, exports, Pakistan needs it. The economic crisis, you know, on our podcast for the last two episodes, we've talked about the economic crisis. Fundamentally, it's linked to Pakistan being unable to earn uh, as much as uh, what it needs uh, in dollar terms uh, to spend on its own people and key products. And people often say, oh, you know, we spend too much on imported cheese and all of that. And my argument to them is, no, it's not that. It's just that 
you have a large population that needs a lot of things from the world, but you don't make enough things. And, and the number one resource you have are young people, median age of 24. And as you said, we spent 200 something million dollars on, on that resource to beef them up. Um, they will be globally competitive and earn export revenues, hopefully by living and thriving in Pakistan. But even if they go abroad, then that there's remittances. Um, how was, um, you know, if, if in the near term, I were, I were to say, um, you said seven, eight companies now, um, are you seeing increasing momentum again in, in places like Pakistan and people are beginning to take a fresh look? Because we hear a lot about the technology sector being sort of a ray of shining light in, in a otherwise quite bleak environment. Um, what, have, what have you experienced in terms of engaging with policymakers on this plan and sort of showing that, you know, the private sector has led, but now the public sector needs to kind of step up and, and, and play a role in a collaboration as well? Well, uh, the sad part is that our public sector has played no role at all. The reason is the public sector is not stable. Um, we have made these presentations to a revolving door of bureaucrats and politicians. They're all well-meaning people. They want to do good, but they're not just in the job for long enough. Semiconductor is a complicated thing. It takes a few months to understand. By the time you understand it, well, you are posted somewhere else. Your IT sector, you become health secretary. Your health secretary, you become railway secretary. Your railway secretary, you become chief secretary of Sindh. So if we do not have bureaucracy, which is stable, we do not have political government, which is stable, this kind of policies are difficult to do. Right? And I, I believe that is the challenge. And this is something individuals will do. World is desperate. World is looking for resources. World will go to Pakistan out of desperation. But that would be limited effort. Now, if the demand is coming on the receiving side, nobody's opening the doors, they will still go through and get a few companies. There. Seven companies might become 30 companies. But we don't want 30 companies. We want 3,000 companies. And in order to get the 3,000 companies, there has to be a concerted effort telling people the door is open, you come set up a company, I'll help you, it's a one-stop shop. Don't have obstacles in setting up companies, don't have obstacle in setting up a bank account, we don't have set up on getting visas of individuals coming to the country. We don't have, uh, we have trained manpower, we have facilities for uh, students who can take loans to get this training. We have people going to international conferences and learning material. We have an active policy of helping other companies recruit our people so that they potentially go work there or maybe a few years come back. This is a concerted effort. It would require thinking about this, all these 10, 15 items that are laid out in Pakistan National Semiconductor Plan, a plan put together with hundreds of people, so many people from government, universities, international folks, all working together for close to a year to put this plan together, very well thought out plan. Not just because I'm part of it, because I've seen other plans in Pakistan. Other plans in Pakistan are bombastic statements about we are going to make Pakistan number one in 5G deployment. Yeah, not happening. We are going to make Pakistan one number one in EV production. Yes, not happening. So those are bombastic political plans written to gain political points. This plan was not written by any politician. This plan was written by technical people who are industry specialists trying to put together a practical plan that a nation of Pakistan can follow and deploy. So that's why I think this plan is very different than other policies that you see, because other policies originate from a political need, or this is, did not originate from there. This needed, the world actually needs these 100,000 people. US does need it. We are actively working with USAID uh, and in Pakistan to see what we can do and invest so, so that even the government not able to do and help as much as they can, maybe USAID can help. Maybe other agencies can help. Because the world does have a need. US does have a need for these engineers. They know it's not coming from India, so they will go wherever. It's not, Pakistan is Bangladesh. It's not Bangladesh, it's Egypt. I'm going to Egypt on Tuesday because we presented a similar plan to President Sisi. 
we multiplied the number because they have a bigger appetite for investment and they have a better economy right now. We made our $250 million plan a billion dollar plan. Guess what? The president said, we're going to do it. Put together a commission around that. Now we have meetings coming up in Egypt to go into detailed implementation. We already have Global Semiconductor Association set up. They are having a very big seminar on 19th of, uh, of February, January. My point really is other nations will get on the train and train will leave the station. So this is the opportunity I think we are missing in Pakistan. I think like Pakistan, Egypt has a young population, obviously back in the IMF, um, trying to stabilize its economy following the Russian war. But again, this idea that reform and export earnings are needed for the Egyptian economy to sustain itself. And this is a big opportunity. And if I were to put based on your points, put on sort of my diplomatic hat, right? We often hear in the Pakistani American discourse tell, well, what is the core anchor of this relationship following the exit in Afghanistan? And people struggle. But what you're describing to me is basically a need on the United States side, talent available on the Pakistani side can reinforce the bilateral relationship and say, you know what, there is something Pakistan offers not only to China, because everyone keeps talking about and raising you a Pakistan-China relationship, but also to the United States in the form of engineers in a key strategic sector like semiconductors, right? And again, uh, I hope we don't wake up 10 years later or folks in Islamabad don't wake up 10 years later and just say, ke, oh, ho, pehle soch lete, to kuch alag ho jata. So actually, you know, people sort of mix the relationship that we have with US and China. The relationship with China and Pakistan is a very different relationship that we have with U.S. Nobody in Pakistan ever says, you know what, I think I want to send, I want to send my send a daughter to China. I want them to study there. And if they get an opportunity to immigrate and live there forever, nobody says, nobody, not one person. But you can find many, many people who say that, you know, yeah, if my son and daughter get a chance, if they go to America and I'm okay, if they settle there and, and maybe even if they settle there, maybe one day I may also think about moving and joining them there. This is a fundamental difference with the relationship between US and Pakistan has and China and Pakistan has. That is a government to government relationship, a strategic relationship needs China has, needs Pakistan has, but no individual has. No Chinese are aspiring to go to Pakistan. No Pakistanis are aspiring to go to... Now, of course, there are no aspiring Americans who want to go to Pakistan, but there are millions of Pakistanis who want to come to America. I believe this is a fundamental difference in the relationships that we should understand. Right? So I think, secondly, US is the largest export market of Pakistan. It's another fundamental difference. It's interesting. China is the biggest investor in Pakistan, yet Pakistan is exporting to US. Isn't that interesting? So when people say that Pakistan and China are strategic partners, I say yes. And they say they have deep relationship. I said no. They have a deep government to government relationship. People to people relationship is simply not there. Now it's not because of lack of, you go to China, they really respect you. They call Pakistan Bajistan. But they say Pakistan is a great country, a friend. They call us, this is a special word for it called iron friend. They don't use it even for their brother. The special word they use for Pakistan. It re recognizes that Pakistan has helped them. Pakistan recognized China has them. But mostly it is a government to government. Our relationship with US, which is true for many countries around the world, including China with US, is different. It's a people to people. People around the world want to come to US. People around the world don't come to, they don't want to go to China. So it's not just Pakistanis don't want to go to China. It's nobody else I met who said, you know, my aspiration is I want to go live in China. Isn't that interesting? This is a fundamental difference. And when US is trying to seal up its borders, this is the unfortunate reality that US has to understand why you are different. People want to come here. People don't want to go to China. So if you want to compete with China, one thing you should do, keep your doors open. Keep yeah. on getting international talent here because that's your advantage. Now, if you close the border, then you and China become same. 
nobody is coming here nobody is going to join now you compete with whatever you have you have one advantage strategic advantage that without incentivizing anybody people want to come here for whatever reason call it hollywood call it lifestyle call it better publicity call it better style of life better call it open economy whatever you want to call it that formula is attracting people from the world whatever formula china has is not attracting anybody from the world now it is attracting investment people want to set up company but they want chinese to set up the company you know nobody is moving from us to china i'll go set up the company i'll set up company let chinese run it i take the profits i come back here tim cook is not moving to china anytime soon that i think about he wants to have a very good apple brand he wants to sell a lot of apple phone but there is no large list of apple employees who have told tim you know what i'm going to move to china and live there and my kids will grow up in china this is a fundamental difference between united states and everywhere else in the world us must not lose that particular advantage we are a desirable country people want to come here people want to live here despite in last 20 years things have changed quite a bit when i came to this country in early 80s believe me i couldn't believe it i found this country to be unimaginable people were so welcoming i used to think what is their agenda why are they are being so nice to me i am nobody to them i just fresh off the boat they didn't think of my color skin they didn't look at my religion they did not look at my background they did not ask me who is my father they did not check my family background they just looked at me and my ideas and what i could contribute to whatever they are doing now doors were open i always say i have been discriminated for in this country and never discriminated against why this is the only country i don't think you can go do that in pakistan i don't think you can go do that in india i don't think you can go do that in china but you can certainly do that in us so i believe that as we examine the relationship between us pakistan and china and pakistan i think we should fundamentally understand the difference in the two relationship and i think when we look at us and china we should fundamentally understand desirability of intelligent hard working justice people to move to us versus china is a strategic advantage we have that we must not lose we may have an immigration policy we don't like we should replace it with a policy that we like as opposed to shutting down the door and go down the path where we become eventually undesirable country and then we'll have to do whatever we have talent we have but our magic has been working because of the immigrants lot of people that coming and working and creating competition and so i i i think this these are my thoughts that we should never lose that advantage i think that's a very important point and and i fully agree i mean uh, you mentioned you coming here in the 80s i came in 2007 to study undergrad um on a scholarship uh and i stayed behind because the desirability was there and 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 you know made this my adopted homeland um and and remind and i like you i remind people that i speak with when it comes to american immigration and stuff like that is like you know this country has been built on the back of successive generations of immigrants and that's the magic um when people from all over the world right we talked about collaboration in semiconductors early on in our episode well america is a melting pot of that different ideas right different ways of thinking different approaches different cultures different traits um and all of that comes together and that's what powers the innovation economy of this country um and to close the doors of that would basically be similar at least i see it as you know when we hear the uh, history of the chinese empire when they burnt all their boats uh, because the emperor changed and if it weren't for that china would have been a naval power uh, far larger than the british uh, but they made that mistake um and we shouldn't make that a similar mistake by burning off our boats which is the desirability of human capital um dr shirwani this has been a fascinating conversation um and again thank you for the work you and everybody involved in that project on the semiconductor plant did i posted it in the description people should take a look and i hope the public sector steps up to the plate because again this is an opportunity to restructure reform rebuild uh rejuvenate pakistan's economy and then also strengthen its position globally before i let you go i ask my guests uh what are two or three books you would recommend to the audience it can be on any topic but uh would love your favorite reads on semiconductors as well so i 
think semiconductor would be too specific for people, but I, I think I, I speak a lot about entrepreneurship and how can people improve themselves. So the, the two books I, I, I recommend that people read is one called Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin. And that is the book about uh, him conducting interviews of thousands of people and then realizing that there is nothing called talent. It is hard work done in a certain way, mentorship and a feedback cycle and a desire of a person to put in one or two decades of effort into a single thing and then becoming so good that you become an Olympic champion or a world leader. He takes examples between sportsmen, musicians, uh, technical people, all of that. And you can see hundreds of examples. It's a very inspiring book. I give lectures about it all over the world. And uh, I'm a very big fan. And I believe that I see my life and life of every beetle, that person that I idolize, semiconductor otherwise, very much live that life that Jeff Colvin talks about. Another related book is called Grit. That's a book by Angela Duckworth. And she studied why some students do better than others. And it is, she calls it Grit, which is exactly the same idea. It is sustained hard work over a very long time. Anybody who achieved anything took almost two decades. Sometimes they started early, age three. So at age 23, when they achieve something, people say, wow, look, that person is so young. Well, that person already spent 20 years doing it. When somebody created symphonies at age 21, well, they were at it for 18 years. And 18 years, you can get somewhere in life, right? If you're practicing 20 hours a day, 18 hours a day, 16 hours a day, those are the kind of people who did that. But the most important thing is this old idea that some people have it and others don't. It's just a bunch of BS. Everybody has it. Anybody can become an Olympic champion. Now, it doesn't ap apply to physical traits. I mean, if you are not certain height, you can probably not become great in basketball. Although there are examples of people who became basketball great, but fewer. But chess, playing violin, studying semiconductors, if you look at all of these things, anybody can become Andy Grove. And we should aspire and encourage everybody that nothing is limiting you. There's nothing that God did not give you. God, everybody gave enough to become Andy Grove. Hence, we see that we don't find something called talent. When we dissect people, there's no gene pops out. Say, ah, see, Andy Grove had that gene nobody else has. We haven't found one so far. That tells us that. Everybody can be Andy Grove. And I want to see a world where every child aspires to become a great and not just but another. And only when every citizen of this world aspires to become great, given an opportunity to become great, nourished, nurtured, and helped along the way, the true potential of the world will come forward. Right now, the world is nurtured by 0.001%. If we can just even change to 0.1%, this world would be a different place. So those are the two books that I, I read a lot myself. And I, I, I give lectures about them. And I, I share as much knowledge around the books that I can share with others. Thank you for those recommendations. And Grit has been on my list uh, for a while. I've been procrastinating on it. So I'll bump it up on, on, uh, to number one on, on my, on my must-read list. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, Dr. Saab, in the sense that you know, uh, we hear growing up, at least I did, that uh, Pakistan mein talent bahut zyada hai. And now as I've gotten a bit older, I'm like, that people are more than that, opportunity or level playing field or education, so it'll change uh, the country. But that has been, you know, people just stop at the talent part. And I'm a big cricket fan. And I remember this interview Virat Kohli uh, once did, and somebody was asking him, what's your favorite food? So he said, so it's like, but I don't eat it. I eat it only once a year now since I went decided to be a professional cricketer because the rest of the time I have to be in top shape. And if I eat chole bature, I can't. And again, it requires sacrifice. 
um, from an individual as well to get to that level. Yeah, batting so, practice of 10, 12, 13, 14 hours every day for yeah. two decades. Yeah. Virat yeah. Kohli came here after he put in 20 years. And people yeah. don't see the 20 years that when they only know him when he became famous. But yeah. there was a Virat Kohli that was not famous. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So again, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and again, uh, for all the amazing work you do across the world on this sector and inspiring people. And again, with the semiconductor plan, I hope that, you know, that gets implemented ex in an accelerated fashion because it's the need of the hour, but we'll keep at it. And, uh, you know, as it makes progress, I hope to have you back on the podcast to talk about where things are going in this sector, but appreciate you taking out the time. Thank you so much. Thank you.